if everyone would like to open up their uh, Bibles to Matthew chapter 27, verses 57 to 66. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea, named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that, de- that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to ma- be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. This morning, we come back to the same passage. Didn't make a mistake, not preaching the same message from last week. But we come back to the same passage uh, that we started last week about the amazing burial of Jesus. But before we delve into that again. I want to take a little time on a very important topic. Part of the reason is to set up the next series of messages coming uh, beginning in May, but also because this will give us a greater understanding of the events that we're reading about this morning in Matthew. You know, one of the greatest and most essential attributes of God, one one which we as Christians have got to understand at the core of our being, is that God is, above all, sovereign. He is, above all, sovereign. Some call it the supremacy of God. What does sovereignty mean? Sovereignty means the supremacy of authority or rule as exercised by a sovereign, such as a king or a ruler. They have the right. And what that means is that God rules over and controls all things. That's the sovereignty of God. Now for us as finite beings, it's impossible for us to understand all of the ramifications of that. But the Bible teaches unequivocally that God is a supreme ruler in the universe. The one who created is the one who sustains. The one who ordained is the one who brings it to pass. The one who established the plan is the one who sees it to its fulfillment. For example, listen to some of this testimony of Scripture. I can't read them all. It's just myriads of them. But listen to some of the testimony of Scripture to the sovereignty of God. Back in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, we read this, Praise to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel. From everlasting to everlasting, yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is a kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, O God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. Wow. 
Second Chronicles 20, Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand, or, uh, yeah, withstand you. In Job chapter 23, we read, But he stands alone, and who can oppose him? He does whatever he pleases. In Psalm 135, the Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and all their depths. Listen to Daniel chapter 4. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? (laughs) In Ephesians chapter 1, great verse. Verse 11, Paul says, He, speaking of God, works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. He works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. Now all of these scriptures and so many more tell about the sovereignty of God. This is the amazing truth that we need to understand and hold on to. What it's telling us is that somebody is in charge. Whether we look at the events going on and say, what in the world is going on? The world and the universe and, and all that is going on, the millions and billions of isolated circumstances are not functioning at random. There is a design and a designer and a purpose and a goal and an objective and an intention in it all. It's beyond... The understanding, probably of most of us, certainly myself, how a computer works. And how it, with identifiable data, can come up with conclusions and results almost immediately. That boggles my mind, but I just, okay, it it works, and I'm glad it works. But, to understand how the infinite mind of an eternal God can collect and collate and bring to perfect harmony every isolated bit of data that exists in the entire universe and make it all work for His will is really way beyond our understanding. In order to get a small grasp on the reality of this truth, we need to understand that God basically rules in the world through two things, or in two ways. The first one is miracles. In other words, in order to accomplish his purpose, there are times when he interrupts the natural flow or order of things, or even the flow of history, and he interrupts it supernaturally. He acts in violation, if you will, of natural law. He overrules natural law. He sets it aside. He steps in with supernatural power to accomplish his will. There are times when he simply sets aside that natural flow and does things that naturally, scientifically are inexplicable. There is no scientific explanation for these miracles. Now, Scripture is full of these kind of things. Creation itself, obviously, was the first interruption in the status quo when God, in a matter of six days, he created all that exists. And then there was the incredible and miraculous event that we know of as the flood, when God drowned the entire world, save eight people and two of each kind of animal. 
And then we read in Scripture about the plagues that that went through uh, Egypt and the death of the firstborn when God miraculously interrupted the course of nature to get His people out and into the promised land. And then we remember the miracle of the parting of the Red Sea and the people of Israel as they crossed on dry ground. And then as soon as they crossed, he, He allowed the seas to sweep over the Egyptian armies. And we remember God brought water from a rock out in the desert miraculously. God, on one occasion, caused the sun to go backwards on the sundial, and another time He made the sun stand still, which means the earth stood still and nobody fell off. Impossible, but He did it. Then you've got a donkey who talked, (laughs) a chariot of fire and a whirlwind that took Elijah to heaven uh, without dying, the infamous divine handwriting on the wall in Belshazzar's court, at his feast and the closing of the mouths of the lions and the lion's den and, and the three men that were in the fiery furnace and they, they didn't burn. Their clothes didn't even get singed. Can't forget the miracle of the man in the belly of, of a great fish for three days and lived. Scripture goes on and on. You get into the miracles of Jesus and the miracles that the apostles performed. There have been times when God, in order to bring about His eternal purposes, has done miraculous things which interrupt the flow of natural history. That's what we call miracles. And God does that as a means to maintain His sovereign control over the events that are taking place in the world that He has created. But there's a second factor that many people don't often think about, and that is divine providence. Divine providence. This describes a very important way in which God controls things that are happening in the universe and in the world. It means that God, rather than overruling or interrupting the natural course of nature, simply orchestrates and uses all the events that are happening to come to His decided outcome. To me, God's providence seems more astounding even than miracles. I can wrap my mind around miracles. But God working all the details out, it it takes all the various uh, things that are happening in the universe to bring them all together to accomplish His will. Uh, To me, that's, that's beyond comprehension. Just think of the diversity of the innumerable events that, are t- that take place, the circumstances, attitudes of people that occur within the limited freedom of men and even the demonic realm, the spiritual realm. And God pulls it all together to ac- accomplish exactly what He wants done. He brings it about to fit perfectly into His purposes. To me, that's mind-boggling. But that's exactly what God does. That's the sovereignty of God. That's the infinite mind of God. Proverbs 19:21 says, "Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose <laughs> that prevails." Isn't that great. Everything is fitting into a grander scheme that is being worked out by the infinitely wise and holy God. Paul says in Ephesians, excuse me, in the Philippians, "It is God who works in you to will and to do his own good pleasure." Even if we don't understand certain things, and there's a lot of things going on in the world today that we don't understand. So much seems like insanity. But we need to remember Proverbs 19.21. Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. 
Let me give you an example that you're all very familiar with, and it's an example of Joseph in the Old Testament. You know the story. You remember that Joseph was one of the 12 brothers, and the brothers hated Joseph because he was the favored son, and so they decided to get rid of Joseph. And they end up selling him to a group of Midianite uh, traders who take him and take him to Egypt, sell him as a slave. And he became a slave because of the whim of his brothers and because of the hatred of his brothers. There was no miracle in that. The brothers decided that. It was just an act that the brothers did thinking they were responding to their own emotions, their own needs, and their own best interests. So he goes to Egypt and he ends up serving a man by the name of Potiphar. And you remember what goes on there. Potiphar's wife takes a shining to Joseph and tries to seduce him. And Joseph uh, wants nothing to do with that. And he runs. She grabs his uh, cloak, tears it off of him. And then she falsely accuses him of trying to rape her. And so he's thrown into jail. Why is he there? Well, the obvious answer is because of this woman who, uh, who, who lied about him because everybody believed her lies. In jail, he comes across another prisoner, and that prisoner uh, has a dream. And he interprets that dream. And then we know the Pharaoh has a dream and, and uh, tries to figure out who, who in the world can interpret this dream. It's really important. And some say, hey, I, I know a guy down in prison. He interprets dreams. He can do yours. So he brings uh, Joseph up, and Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream, and Pharaoh then makes him the prime minister of Egypt. Again, so far, no miracles, right? It's all been the decisions of the brothers of Potiphar's wife, of the guy in jail, and the decision of Pharaoh. He's gone from being sold into slavery to being the second man, the second man in control or in rule in Egypt under Pharaoh. You say, well, is, is that really important? Well, yes, because God had a plan. He was working out. Did Joseph understand that plan from the get-go? Probably not. You remember Pharaoh's dream, and there would be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. So during the seven years of plenty, Joseph uh, taxed the people 20% of all their grain, and he stored that over those seven years. So there would be grain to hand out during the seven years of famine. And then during the seven years of famine, uh, what happened? The people living up in his homeland who hadn't been planning like Joseph had been planning. They had no supply of extra grain. So they, they all packed up and they went to Egypt to uh, beg for some food from, from the Egyptians. And to whom do you think they had to go to beg? <laughs> Joseph. So here comes Joseph's family to him asking for food. You say, well, is that important? Well, yes, it's important. Why? Well, what would have happened to Joseph's family if Joseph's family had died? Then you lose the 12 tribes of Israel. And so they come to Joseph to beg him for some provision, and you, you know what happens in the 45th chapter of Genesis. In, in verse 4 it says, Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold to, in, into Egypt. What a shock that must have been for them. From a shepherd boy sold into slavery, now the prime minister of Egypt. Then verse 5, listen to verse 5, fascinating. And now, Joseph says, Do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because, listen, listen, 
Don't be angry for selling me here. It was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Joseph knew it by then. This, it was God's doing. It wasn't because of Joseph. Uh, the, his, his brothers, excuse me. It wasn't because of Potiphar. It wasn't because of Pharaoh. You know, God could have picked up Joseph up in a cloud. He could have used a chariot and dropped in the middle of Egypt and made him prime minister just like that. Miracle. But he didn't do that. God didn't use that miracle. He used providence. A whole lot of random choices by a whole lot of people did nothing except work out the plan of God. Verses 6 six and 7 of Genesis 45 goes on to say, For two years now, Joseph said, There has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping. Listen, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve you, a remnant on the earth, and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Isn't that amazing? In chapter 50, verse 20, he says, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Folks, that's always God's intent. Good. Always. And here is God in a sequence of random events working out His purpose. His purpose being to preserve the the 12 sons, to preserve the 12 tribes of Israel, and He does it through providence. He still works that way. If you were to look back on your life, and you probably have, you can probably recognize God's moving now. You may not have been seeing it in some of the steps that were taking place. It's been so clear in my own life. From a boarding school in India, I ended up in a Wesleyan Methodist college of 1,200 students in upstate New York. I chose that college because it had a physical education major. God let me think that. I believe God sent me there because he had my future wife already there. Do you know what my mom's one desire for a wife for me was? That she would be a good Christian and Missionary Alliance girl. I was in a Wesleyan Methodist college of 1,200 students. There may have been about 10 Alliance students there. And God picked out a good Christian Missionary Alliance girl for me. But she was far more than that. She was a good Alliance girl who had a heart for God, who was willing to do His will, a girl that He knew would be willing to be dragged all over the world because of her love for Him. I could tell you details how we thought we were making decisions in all of our ministry moves, but how God was always in control. We had our hearts set on a church in Mendham Hills, New Jersey, right out of seminary. It was going to be our home service before going to the mission field. But by decision of the board... Our candidating trip was paused. I say paused because they came back to me later and asked me to come. But it was paused just long enough as we look back at it, we see God working long enough for God to show us Dubois, Pennsylvania, Western Pennsylvania, where I ended up being a youth pastor for three years. Why was I there? Well, I thought it was just to fulfill my home service 
prerequisite before going out to the mission field. Just get her done, right? Two or three years. But looking back, God had me there because he needed to change my mind. I was focused on going to, back to India. That's where I grew up. But a year and a half into our ministry, he brought David Arnold, old-time missionary from Ivory Coast, to be our missionary at our missionary uh, conference. And he used him to touch our hearts, to open our eyes to see what God was doing in Ivory Coast and to change our hearts to Ivory Coast rather than to India. Step by step, through God's providence, God placed us in a city in West Africa to which we didn't want to go, among a people group that we didn't want to minister among. After three terms, 15 years, he brought us back to the States using a military coup in the country to keep us from going back again. And through some random events and conversations, we ended up going back to India for four years. And while in India, we met your district superintendent, Coincidence? I don't think so. Without meeting him there, we would have never ended up here. Never. Even coming here, when we came for the candidating weekend, some of you know this, my heart, my thoughts were in California. There was just this wonderful, exciting opportunity that that I was really focused on. In fact, just before coming here for the candidating weekend, I actually posed a question to my my wife: How how am I going to let Sio down easy? Because I thought we were going to California. In fact, I had my final interview by FaceTime with the church in California at the Detroit airport after we left from lunch here before we flew back home. But God had already spoken, already spoken to both of our hearts as we walked down this pathway. If they call us, this is it. An interview at the airport, I thought it went horribly, which convinced me that this was it. It turns out, Nancy's brother-in-law, my brother-in-law, part of the church out there in California, they thought the interview was great. and They were ready to call, call us to go on candidate day, but, but God had already made his decision and our decision by obedience to Sile. And though there were many times that we wondered what in the world God is doing or sometimes even in the normal course of things um, happening, we look back down and think, wow, God did all that in his providence. Folks, this is how God controls history. He controls your history. He controls my history. He controls the history of the world through providence as well as miracles. Even the events that are going on between Russia and Ukraine right now, it's hard for us to wrap our heads um, around what's going on there. Though we may not see it or understand it right now, God is working His purposes. And you know what? He doesn't have to check in with us to see if it's okay. To see if we're okay with how He's doing things. We just need to trust Him. 
And I don't think we see the providence of God any more graphically than we do here in Matthew 20, uh, excuse me, 27, yes. We started to look at this last week. And we've seen how God used all the human and satanic forces to kill his son. To accomplish his redemptive purpose. God controlled the hatred of the Jews. He controlled the hostility of the Romans toward the Jews. He controlled even the defection of his disciples. He controlled every aspect, even the betrayal by Judas and the denial by Peter. You know, today is the day that we celebrate Palm Sunday, the day that he came into Jerusalem and they were waving branches. Even that scene was controlled by God. Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem on the very day that Daniel prophesied he would, back in Daniel chapter 9. Jesus rode into the city on the day everyone else was selecting their Passover lamb. Is that coincidence? God was saying, here is my lamb on that same day that everybody else was choosing their physical lambs. And he died on the very day that the Passover lambs were being slaughtered. Every single detail was covered and all by the free choice of men, they thought. And by the working actually of demonic spirits pushing all this, trying to kill Jesus Christ. And in truth, when it's all said and done, it's all the work of God. It was divine providence that directed all the events of the unjust trials that Jesus suffered. God used six amazing miracles that we looked at when when Jesus was hanging there on the cross to show His mighty power and the deity of of His Son. He then worked through divine providence in the lives and hearts of people to work out the events of the burial even of His Son. Listen to what Peter and John and the other believers pray in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 27-28. It's an amazing prayer. They're in the process of praying in that passage. And they say within that prayer, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this day to conspire against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed. So they're, they're realizing that Herod and Pilate and Jews and the Gentiles were all against Jesus. All were conspiring against him. And listen, next verse. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Isn't that amazing? God's providence. They just did what God laid out for them to do. And they did it with their own independent choices within the framework of their sin and yet worked out the perfect plan of God. And we see even in the burial of Christ the providence of God at work. We began looking at that last week. You first see it with the fulfilled prophecies in verses 57 through 60, which we looked at. And the man of God, and the man God uses to do this was the man of Joseph from a town called Arimathea. And though he had no idea, I don't believe he had any idea that God was using him and orchestrating and directing him, he became instrumental in God's hands to fulfill two major prophecies from Isaiah. You remember, he was assigned to a grave with the wicked, yet God assigned him to be with the rich. 
And that rich man happened <laughs> to be Joseph of Arimathea. And then we saw that because he had a new tomb right near the cross, God worked in his heart to, to ask Pilate for the body of Jesus, and he was able to get it in the earth before 6 p.m., which had been the start of the Sabbath, and thus fulfilled Jesus' own prophecy that he'd be in the earth three days and three nights, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So both Joseph and Nicodemus, we looked at that, who was helping him, acting on their own, as they assumed, were really working out God's providential plan perfectly. How does that work? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's a God thing, and I'm okay with that. The second way we began to see the providence of God here is through the two women in verse 61. They, in God's hands, became first-hand eyewitnesses and testimony to the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then we come to the third group. That's what we want to look at just a little bit here uh, this morning. A third group that God providentially orders in the scene to bring about this amazing burial of Jesus Christ. And they are the chief priests and the Pharisees, the last ones you would think God would ever use. What do they do? Well, verse 62 says, The next day, the day after preparation day, do you remember which day that was? That was Thursday, right? The special Sabbath, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. On that day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Jesus was already dead, already in the tomb. Why did they go to Pilate? He, it wasn't enough that they got him crucified and got him buried. They were afraid of one more thing, and they got together the small group, and they went to Pilate. And here's their request. Sir, they said, remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I'll arise again. See, their contempt was still there. Their, their, their hatred for Jesus was still there, still so strong. And they're expressing what they still believe. Jesus was this horrible, horrible deceiver. And I think at the same time, they're kind of patting Pilate on the back, saying, hey, you did a good job. We're still with you on this. And the thing they're concerned about is that Jesus had said, after three days, I will rise again. You know, I find that fascinating in that they remembered that. But the women and disciples, they seem to have forgotten it, right? Either that or they thought, oh, it's a spiritual thing that he's talking about. Not really a physical thing. But it was the Pharisees who had asked Jesus for a sign of his de deity back in Matthew chapter 12. And, and that was when Jesus said that he'd be in the earth three days and three nights, just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish. And they seemed to have gotten it. They believed and knew that Jonah had been in the belly of the fish and came out alive. So they understood what Jesus was saying. He was claiming that he was going to rise again, and they had not forgotten that. Now, did they believe it? I doubt it. Not for a minute. But the fact that he said he was going to do it made them think, well, the disciples, they know this, and uh, no doubt they're anticipating it, and so the disciples may try something to make it look like it's going to happen. And so in verse 64, they say to Pilate, so give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day, otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. 
Now again, I don't think they're afraid that he will actually rise. They're afraid the disciples will fabricate a resurrection to keep the movement alive. That's what they're really afraid about. And the irony of it is that it never even crossed the minds of the disciples to even think about doing that. The disciples were having such a pity party and were so full of fear, hiding out someplace that we don't even know where they're hiding out. Even though Jesus had explicitly told them over and over and over again that he was going to rise on the third day. So to prevent any possibility of any chicanery, that, that, uh, that they go to Pilate and they say, we want you to seal that tomb. We want you to put a guard there so that the disciples won't come and steal the body. Or else they said, the end of verse 64 there, the last deception will be worse than the first. Well, what was the first deception? Probably what we're celebrating today, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He comes riding into the city on the colt, the foal of a donkey, the garments and the branches and everything are thrown out on the path in front of him. The people are excited that Jesus comes riding into the city and they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of of God, the name of the Lord, the son of David. They were receiving him as a Messiah. They're receiving him as king in the line of David. And what the chief priests and Pharisees are saying to Pilate is, if you think that caused an uproar, and if you think that caused you a problem, you just watch what happens if the disciples fabricate the story that Jesus rose from the dead. You better seal that tomb and put a guard there and keep that from happening. And verse 65 says, take a guard, Pilate answered. Take a guard, go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. Isn't that interesting? Pilate had the Jews themselves go and seal it so it would be to their satisfaction. He said, here, take a guard and do your worst. And then verse 66 says, So they went and made this tomb secure by putting a seal on the tomb and posting the guard. Now, it doesn't mean they put chains and padlocks on on the tomb. It was more likely kind of a string that was put across with a wax seal or something of that sort uh, firmly over the string. So if anybody tried to move the the rock, the string would be broken or the wax seal would be broken. They know that it had been tampered with. And there they'd have the reason to blame the disciples. In addition to that, they had a Roman soldier standing guard. In fact, what we're going to see in Matthew 28 that there were at least two guards there at the tomb. She says, so what, does that really matter? Well, absolutely. Remember, the sealing of the tomb was all the work of the chief priests and the Pharisees and Pilate and the soldiers. No miracle of being, being take, uh, involved here. So what's the significance? Well, the chief priests and Pharisees already suggested that Jesus' body might be stolen and perpetuate a fraud that he rose from the dead. And do you know what's interesting here is that same main theory has been going down through the ages all the way to this day. His body was stolen, disciples concocted a lie. But listen, in God's sovereignty, because that's what we're dealing with here, He made sure that a whole lot of non-believers, a whole lot of people who rejected and hated Jesus, there were the ones, he set it all up so that there was uh, no possible way for any disciple to come and steal the body. 
It wasn't the disciples that had sealed the tomb. It was the Christ rejectors. It was the Christ haters. So the fact that the stone was rolled back while the guards were standing there is absolute proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There could be no explanation. They couldn't blame the disciples. Psalm 76 verse 10 says, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The Jewish leaders, by their hatred of Jesus, Pilate, by his scorn and indifference, all worked together to praise the sovereignty of God. The wrath of these Christ-haters led them to secure that grave to the extent that there was no other explanation than a resurrection. And later on, we'll see in chapter 28, the soldiers were bribed... to tell or to deny that resurrection, which is just another testimony of the truth, of the reality. See how God is just working in everything? He used Joseph Arimathea providentially to fulfill prophecy. He used the two Marys providentially to give firsthand testimony to the death and the resurrection. And he used the chief priests and the Pharisees of all people providentially to give powerful proof that Jesus indeed rose from the dead. And therefore, he is who he was, who he claimed to be the very Son of God. Now listen carefully. How does this relate to us? There's a verse that almost all of us may know by heart. Romans 8.28 And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. In light of what we've talked about this morning and the sovereignty of God and how He works everything out, does that verse have new meaning? I'm sure you understand what it's saying. All things are controlled by God to work together to fulfill His eternal purpose for His dearly loved children. And it's always for their good. Always for their good. That, folks, is an amazing truth. This idea of God's sovereignty and God's providence is not some abstract doctrine that for theologians to discuss and write big, thick uh, volumes on, which they've done. This is where the rubber meets the road in our faith. When we can't explain the trouble we may be going through, or the horribleness of this pandemic and all that goes with it, or the atrocities that are taking place in the Ukraine. We need to understand the providential power of a sovereign God. One who takes every bit of the diverse data of the universe and controls it all for our good and for His glory and for His eternal purposes. We can take comfort from that. It doesn't matter what the situation is. And God demonstrated His ability to do that in the death and burial of Jesus Christ. It's an amazing thing. Whatever is happening in your life, or whatever has happened in your life, 
Whatever we can't understand, whatever we struggle with, whatever doesn't make sense, whatever trials we may be going through, remember, it all fits. It all fits. God says, trust me. Don't doubt me. Trust me. Folks, God is at work, and we need to remember that in everything. He's at work. It's for his glory. It's for our good. He's in control. He has not abandoned his throne. And our hope and our confidence is in a God who providentially, and if need be, miraculously, controls all things to his own intended and eternal purpose. Yours, mine, the world, the universe. Father, thank you for your omnipotence, your all-powerfulness, for your omniscience, your all-knowingness, for your sovereignty, for your miraculous powers, for your providence. And Father, I pray that this whole concept will be new and fresh for us in our own personal lives. We know that you are at work, and what you're doing in our lives, what you're doing in our church, what you're doing in our surrounding areas, Father, it's for your glory, it's for our good, and you are at work, and we trust you. Forgive us for trying to overstep. Forgive me, perhaps, trying to overstep, overstep where you are going. Father, help me to just sit back and say, okay, <laughs> you do it, God. You're in control. Help us to follow you. In Jesus' name.